You're listening to the Boise Community Church Podcast. We desire to be a people who are following Jesus authentically and missionally. For more information, please visit boisecommunitychurch.org. And yeah, we're going to do things a little bit different this morning as we, as we walk through the teaching. If you have your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, um, feel free to grab one in the back. There's some back there. If you don't own a paper copy of the Bible, we would love to, to make that our gift to you. We believe about very highly in getting the Word of God into the hands of people. And so with that, let's take one more moment and let's pray one more time. Jesus, we come to you knowing that you alone have the words of eternal life. And so, God, we, we hold this book in our hands or on the screen on our phones, and Lord, we, we hold it as sacred, as holy, as precious in our hearts. And Lord, we don't want to come just to, to, to hear a, just a quick encouragement. Lord, we come because we desire to interact with the living God. And so Jesus, I do, I pray this morning that we would be a church that has ears to hear and Lord, that your spirit would move and we would hear and sense what you are doing in our midst. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start, we're going to get started in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, So let's dive into our text this morning. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so when Jesus... We're going to be going through the text and we're going to be going line by line as we study through this chapter of of Mark's gospel. When Jesus crosses back across this lake, and so if you've been here, we've been talking about how Jesus, he seems to be ping-ponging across the Sea of Galilee and he's being greeted by these different groups. But once again, he's greeted by this large crowd. And in the middle of this large crowd that's pressing on him, that's hanging on his words that want to see and experience and know what he's doing, one of the religious leaders of the day, a highly respected man named Jairus, falls at Jesus' feet, and he begins pleading with him, begging him to come and just lay hands on his daughter who is dying. In the Greek, it actually carries this idea that she was like knocking on death's door. She was so close to dying. And so the moment it's bleak, And there's this father, and he's breaking the code of conduct with all the other religious leaders in his faith, who had already been upset by Jesus and upset by the things he was teaching and doing and saying, and telling their fellow teachers of the law to deny Jesus at every opportunity. But this man breaks from that that party Because his daughter is sick. Because he's scared and he knows that he himself cannot do anything to help her. 
And I think something I want to point out. How many, how many of you have had someone literally fall at your feet? I've had it happen once in my entire life. And it was a very awkward experience. And we're not going to dive into that story, and I can tell you that story later if you're interested, because it has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning. But the humility in that moment to, to completely lay yourself out in a place of submission is really powerful. And as this man is a highly respected religious teacher of the day, he's the leader of the local synagogue, but he is laid out because his daughter is sick and he is scared. And he can't do anything to help her. But he's heard these rumors of this man, this rabbi, Jesus, this, the man who casts out demons, the one who heals those that are lame or sick. And so in his mind, I'm sure he's thinking, I may lose my position as the, the head of the synagogue and lose my standing in the religious community, but I'll do anything to save my daughter. And honestly, there's, there's few seasons of my life where I can say I really had a strong prayer life, where I look back and, you know, have this like confidence in how I pray. But there is one season I remember very vividly that, that my prayer life was very active and very strong. And it was when one of my middle daughters was born. She would choke really bad while she was nursing. And so we brought her in to have her looked at and just because it felt off. It didn't seem like anything major to us. And, you know, babies are babies. And sometimes they have trouble and sometimes they're fine. Uh, and so we ended up in places that we never expected with Daisy. Tons of doctor's visits, tons of tests, and eventually, when she was a year old, getting an MRI on her brain because they were concerned about all sorts of different things. And I remember a night very vividly. We're getting ready to host all these people in our home, and a neurologist calls and he's talking to me on the phone, and I'm expecting the call to be like, hey, we got the scans, everything's good, We're, you know, everything's great. And it starts off with, yeah, the scans came in, I don't really like what I'm seeing, I'm seeing some stuff light up, and it's really concerning, and there's a very strong chance your daughter's going to be uh, special needs, from what I'm seeing. And if you're a parent, when something's wrong with your kid, and the future of your but the life that you envision for your kid feels like a mystery. You learn to pray really well. And it what became this really beautiful moment where people in our home rallied around us and prayed with us and cared for us. But I love, I love this story because I love Jairus' heart because this is where he is. He's got, he's got news that his daughter's going to die. And he's like, I'm going to do anything for my daughter. And so Jesus, he agrees to go with them. Coming back to our text in verse 24. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for about 12 years. So there's this, they're on their way to Jairus' house. 
They're in this huge crowd. Everybody's pressing in. And there's this woman there that's in the crowd. Nobody really notices her. Nobody's really kind of paying attention to what's going on. But something was wrong with her physical body, which made her have this constant menstrual bleeding. And she had been struggled with this for 12 years. And so before we get a little further into why this matters, and, and I actually want to explain to you why this matters, I'm going to read to you from the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, starting in verse 19. I just have it in my notes. If you want, you can turn there if you want to read it yourself. Um, it, is, it is a little bit long, so feel free to turn there if that's what you're interested in. Starting in verse 19 of Leviticus 15, it says, When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Good morning again. Welcome to Voice of Community Church. We're glad to have you. It's just going to get so much better. Uh, verse 20. Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Whether it is the bed or anything she was sitting on, when anyone touches it, they will be unclean till evening. If a man has sexual relations with her and her monthly flow touches him, he will be unclean for seven days. Any bed he lies on will be unclean. Verse 25, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, so this is the woman we're talking about. Or her has a discharge that continues beyond that period, or beyond her period. She will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while she, her discharge continues will be unclean, as in her bed during her monthly period, and anything she sits on will be unclean, as during her period. Verse 27, anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Verse 28, when she is cleansed from her discharge, she must count off seven days, and after that she will be ceremonially clean. On the eighth day, she must take two doves and, or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, which was like their temple. This is back when they were wandering in the top of the tabernacle. The priest is to sacrifice one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he will make atonement for her before the Lord for the uncleanness of her discharge. Verse 31, this is the last one. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my place, which is among them. I tried to tell you, it gets really good. So, um... And maybe you're like, why on earth would you read that right now? Like, why would you go into that? But the woman, according to the Levitical law, she would have been seen as ceremonially unclean. And we need to remember that this text is around 3,000 years old. So the word hygiene didn't exist up to this point. This is a very complicated way of describing hygiene and talking. And that was really God's heart in a lot of this stuff, was helping them stay clean and healthy. Um, and also set apart and holy. And so the phrasing in the Old Testament between clean and unclean is much deeper, though, than, than simply hygiene. Because in the Jewish community, if you were labeled unclean, you were not only 
just like, hey, that's kind of bad. Like, you didn't wash your hands and you went to the bathroom. That's gross. It was like, hey, you're not a part of our society right now. You were pushed out of the community and you were ultimately cut off from society. Which, if we're honest, that's, that sounds horrible, right? The only thing that I can think of where I'm like, this kind of like scratches the surface of it, where we can apply it into our world today, would have been what we experienced during the culture, our cultural moment, walking through the pandemic with the COVID outbreak. Because almost every person I talked to, when their household got COVID, they all talked about struggling with the same thing. They would talk about feeling lonely. They would talk about feeling isolated. Some would actually even use the term, man, I just feel really dirty. Because no one wanted to or would come near them. But honestly, even that isn't close to the same as what it would feel like to fall into that, that category of unclean. Because in Jesus' day, if you were unclean, you weren't allowed to be a part of the community. But on top of that, you weren't allowed to... You weren't welcome or allowed to come into the temple to worship. So not only were you cut off from all of mankind, you were also cut off from engaging with the, the presence of God. So you were cut off from community and people in general, and then you were isolated from being able to come into God's presence and to worship Him. To, to like summarize all that, it's, it's just intense. What this woman would have felt, what she walked through, what she lived under. It's intense, to say the least. Verse 26 of Mark 5. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And so this woman had tried to find healing. She had gone to the local doctor. She had gone and seen all these different people and spent probably an insane amount of money trying to find healing. And the doctors in that day, they would, they would have such crazy and differing theories and methods of trying to treat people with issues like this. I actually found one that a rabbi talks about, and I'm, it's going to be on the screen for you. It's, it says, Rabbi Jochanan, take of gum Alexandria of Alum and of Corcus, Hortensis, the weight of Azuzi, which I don't know what that is, but let them be bruised together. So take these things and smash them together and give them in wine to this woman who has this issue of blood. But if this fails, take of Parisian onions nine logs and boil them in wine. That does not sound good. Does, it, does anyone want like anything, their wine boiled with anything in it? I don't think that's a really common accepted thing. So then you give it to her to drink and then you say, cease your discharge. And if that fails, put her in one place where two ways meet. So she's on a street like this, where there's just these two roads and she's just going to hang out in the middle. And then, all of a sudden, have somebody sneak up behind her and grab her and say, cease your discharge! Like, this sounds terrible. Like, we should all laugh a little bit about this because this is just awful, right? 
But this is what they would do. This was, these were the practices that this woman would talk about. It's incredibly brutal. Trying to scare this woman out of her discharge or drinking these crazy concoctions. One of them that I actually had found, there's... It goes to the point where they're like, find a white mule and grab its dung and blend it up and have her drink that. And then if it, that fails, and then it just keeps going. So she's... She really is suffering not only from the disease she has, but she's also suffering from these so-called cures as well. And so it's in this place where she's running out of hope, running out of resources. She's been isolated for 12 years. No one will touch her, probably really look at her. She's completely isolated. And she hears that this rabbi Jesus has come. He's close by. And she's heard the stories about him. And so she sneaks up through the crowd with the thought, if I can just touch his clothes, then I will be healed. And what I want to clarify, when she says, if I could just touch his clothes, I always have this picture in my mind, and it's not the accurate version. That's why I want to explain it. Rabbis would have these long shawls. They were called their prayer shawls, and they would have these tassels on them that they would remind them to pray throughout the day. So Jesus is this good rabbinical teacher of the law. So it is without doubt that Jesus would have been wearing this and they would hang really long. And as they would walk, they would hang off them. And I, in my mind, I always picture her like crawling through the crowd and then like just barely like touching the edge of his long robe. But that's not what she would have been reaching for. She actually would have been reaching for the tassel on that, that prayer garment. That's what she was going to touch. We need to remember who this woman is. She's a Jew, so she knows Malachi. She knows the scripture. She knows that when the Messiah comes, when he comes, there will be healing in the hem of his garments, in the hem of his prayer shawl, on that tassel. And this is why the woman is saying what she is saying. And why she is believing what she is believing. And honestly, what she's doing in this moment is this is the, her way of saying that she believes that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He is not just a good man. He is not just a, a, a phenomenal rabbi. But he is actually the Messiah, the promised one, the one who would save his people and all of mankind from their sins. This is her again making that claim. I believe that you are more. I believe that there's healing within you. I believe that you are the one we have waited for. And so she reaches out and she touches his tassel. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stops. And she felt in her body that she was free from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus looked around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. And so it's in a moment. 
She knows her body. She's experienced this for 12 years. It's in one moment she's healed. And she's free from her suffering. And I love that language. That she's free. I, I just want us to pause for a moment. And just think about how beautiful this story is. How amazing it is. But Jesus knows that power had left him. The Greek word for power in this text is uh, dynamis, which is where we get our English word for dynamite. Jesus then realizing what has happened and is scanning the faces in the crowd and he's asking the question, who touched me? And his disciples' response, I think, is hilarious. Because he's, they're kind of, their attitude's almost like, well, the better question is, who didn't touch you? I mean, there's, there's people everywhere. And for us to just have, bring ourselves into the story a little bit more, this is that moment when you're going into the stadium to see a big game. You know, or you're, if you're like my family, you're at Disneyland and it's rope drop time. And everybody's waiting to get into the park, right? And everybody's rubbing shoulders to shoulder and you're bumping into someone. If you were to stop and be like, hey, who's touched me? Somebody touched me right now. You'd be like, well, I just got hit by like six different strollers. And, you know, I've had 14 little children step on my feet. So I don't know who touched me. <laughs> but Jesus knows that something different is happening here. The woman comes and she falls at his feet because she's terrified. She's scared. Remember, she is ceremonially unclean. Actually, one of the practices, if you were unclean, is you would actually call out to people, hey, don't come near me. I'm unclean. I don't want to give what I have to you. I don't want to share what I have. But she doesn't do that. Instead, she, you know, she realistically, she shouldn't have been in the crowd. She honestly shouldn't have been near a rabbi. She really, really shouldn't have tried to touch a rabbi. And so I'm sure in her mind's eye, she's picturing, man, I'm going to like fall before Jesus and he is going to light me up and tell me how I'm selfish, how I'm, how I'm thinking of only myself. He doesn't care that I'm healed because I've made, I've possibly made him unclean through this interaction. Because if she had touched any other rabbi, if she reached up and touched Jairus, he, I'm sure, would have lit her up and given her a lot of reasons on why this was not okay. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead of ridiculing her for her inconveniencing him, from slowing him down on the journey that he's on, or possibly making him unclean and making him have to go into isolation, or her just trying to meet her own needs. Look what he, he says to her. He calls her daughter. It's a term of endearment. He reaches out and he's like, Honey, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. Notice he doesn't say, Hey, you know, it was my prayer shawl. And, you know, it's all good. It's not my prayer shawl that healed you. It's your, it's your faith. That has healed you. Now go and live free at once. 
And something I think that's important for us to remember, like a lot of times we love this story because it's like it's such a beautiful story. This is an interruption of what's supposed to be going on. They're supposed to be headed to Jairus' house, and this is all an interruption. And so it's a distraction from what's going on. And Jesus allows this distraction and engages with her in such a beautiful and, and special way. Because they're, and we have to remember, they're on their way somewhere. So back to our text in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, so he's speaking to this woman. He's saying, you're, you're, you're free to go and live in peace. Some people come from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and they say, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. So during this entire ordeal with this woman, and I'm sure Jairus is like, hey man, let's get going. I told you, my daughter's like on the verge of dying. My daughter really needs you. And now there's this woman that's jamming him up and slowing everything down. And right in the middle of all of it, some people show up and tell him, hey, don't bother the teacher your daughter's dead. It's a waste of his time at this point. And I picture like the gut check of this man in that moment. Like, ah, I was so close. Because the beauty for us is most of us know the end of the story. If you don't, it's really good. We're going to get there. Just give me a few, few more minutes. But Jesus looks at this dad who's got to just be absolutely crushed. And he's like, hey, don't worry, just believe. The same phrase that he had just spoken to this woman. Hey, your faith has made you well. And hey, Jairus, now I just need you to have a little faith. So verse 37, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. This is like Jesus' inner circle. These are his his boys and the, the people that he's really connected with and get to see all these special parts of the ministry. And when they had come to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child isn't dead, but asleep. Verse 40, but they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with them. And they went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Telethea kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the little girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to so they arrive at Jairus' house, and there are people wailing and crying. And, and so something that's important in this time period, because they didn't have morgues and the things that we have today, you wouldn't have, like if somebody died, they were getting buried that day. Because in the Middle East, it gets really hot. And having a body out just in the elements is not a good move. So they would bury people very quickly um, if they passed. So it was very common when someone would die, they would call these professional mourners. Can you think of like a worse job than being a professional mourner? And basically what they would bring, they would just bring the drama. Like they would show up and they would, they would literally wail and cry. And it was a symbol to everyone around you that you, your family had experienced this tremendous loss. 
And so Jesus walks up with his inner circle and he's like, hey, what's all going on here? She's not dead. She's asleep. Something I want to clarify, too. Jesus isn't saying, hey, you guys aren't doctors. She's actually, she's just taking a really hard nap. She is, by what we would consider today's standards, dead. She's 100% dead. But Jesus and the New Testament writers, they, when they speak of death, they would oftentimes speak of those who had passed that had not experienced resurrection. They would talk about them as being asleep, as that, to refer to the time period between death and resurrection. And so everyone begins to laugh at Jesus like he's just this fool because we're like, we know she's dead. It's very clear. So Jesus kicks all the mourners out, all the wailers out, and goes into the room with his disciples and the parents of this 12-year-old girl. And he calmly speaks the word, little girl, get up. And I think what's important to note again, this is again a term of endearment, similar to when I go and wake up my son when he's napping. I don't just like kick the door open and be like, hey, get up. It's time to go. You know, like I open the door and I always have this big smile on my face and my eyes are, I just feel like my eyes are like huge. I'm like, hey, buddy, it's time to get up. Come on, man. Because I want him to have a, to wake up into a loving space and environment. And I picture Jesus kind of doing the same thing, walking in and being like, honey, wake up. And she does. And Jesus' response, I think, is hilarious. Because Jesus' response is totally different than what I would do. If I raise somebody from the dead, I'd tell everyone, this is amazing. But Jesus is like, hey, don't tell anyone. And give her something to eat, she's probably hungry. Like, I just think it's a really funny point to put in the story. But the idea of Jesus' power really shines through chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Mark. Because... We see Jesus' power over creation with the storm. We see Jesus' power over the demonic kingdom with the possessed man and the pigs. And right here we see Jesus' power over physical illness and death. But it's about more than just his power. Church, I think what this, this shows us is what he is really like, how he brings people together. In the Jewish culture, Jairus and this woman would have never been in the same place at the same time. For one, he was held in high regard and highly respected as the leader of the synagogue. He was the religious elite. He was the man when it came to you know, the Jewish faith. And then there's this woman. You know, she's isolated from everyone for 12 years due to her illness. And she, had, she didn't carry the, the title of highly respected or leader, but she carried the title of unclean, unwanted, untouchable. But both of these people come to Jesus with a need, with their hearts broken and open and ready to see this man who they've heard so much about. They come longing for Jesus to, to fix their situation. And what we see in this passage is that what Jesus is like. 
And I honestly love that Jesus interacts with the religious elite because it, it kills the narrative of that Jesus did not care about the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the religious leaders of the day. That's just not a true statement. He was offended by them and he was frustrated by the, the corruption that was in them, but he still loved them, even in their sin. And even in their failure and their theology of not recognizing that he was the one they had all been waiting for. Jesus didn't brush this woman off to say, I've got better things to do. I'm going to this highly esteemed official's house. I don't have time to deal with you. Or I just ignore the fact that, hey, she, she got what she wanted and just keep cruising. What we see in this passage is what Jesus is like. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not uncaring, but instead he's very warm, he's approachable, he's inviting, he's intentional. And I think the message for some of us in this room is we need to be like both Jairus and this woman. We simply need to come to Jesus. Because some of you have wounds. Some from church, some from your past, some from things you've done, and some from things that have been done to you. Some of you have disappointments, broken dreams, failed marriages, lost loved ones, chronic health issues, broken relationships. The first step towards healing, towards wholeness, towards freedom like Jesus proclaimed over this woman is like Jairus, like this woman did, to come to Jesus. Because if they hadn't brought their need to Jesus, those needs could not be met. Some of you know my daughter Alice. She's incredibly quiet, as some of you, some of you know. And one of the things we're, we're constantly working on with her is helping her to learn to communicate what her needs are. She's just very, very shy and, and doesn't like to express those things. Because it's not like my wife and I don't want to meet her need, actual needs. You know, if she needs to go to the bathroom, we obviously want to know that. If she's hungry, we want to know that. If she's cold or thirsty or whatever it is, if she's in pain, we want to meet her needs. And if, if we want to meet our children's needs, how much more does our Heavenly Father desire to meet our needs? But I think a lot of the times we don't bring those things to Him. And I think we operate a lot of the times in our lives with this mindset of, well, you're the God of the universe. You're the God that knows my heart. You see everything. You should just know. But church, relationship is built in the ask. The ask is us proclaiming, I need you and I want you. And some of us come to Jesus like this woman did. You know, if we do come to Jesus, we come just to get a touch. Just a little bit of power to feel good, to find comfort, to get direction. And we want to slip away because we got what we needed. And this, that isn't who Jesus is. He isn't going to just say, hey, that's cool, do that. Because he wants to embrace you. He wants 
to know you and be known by you because then you can trust him. He doesn't just want to be your therapist or your problem fixer. He wants to be in deep and loving relationship with you. This is what makes our faith as followers of Jesus, as Christians, this is what makes our faith different than so many other religions. Our faith is not about just being clean or being unclean or following the right rules or doing the right thing. The faith all boils down to being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing the things that Jesus did. Because Jesus doesn't see you as a face in the crowd. He sees you and he calls to you and says, come to me, my son. Come to me, my daughter. He wants to be close to you. And so I want to end with this question. Where in your faith have you been living as a consumer? If you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, where have you been just wanting to be a consumer? Because if we look at the story, what this woman was doing, she was being a consumer. She's just trying to get what she can get from him. Where we are coming to God like a menu machine or a service that is offered to us. And I do, I believe this is the word for us this morning. It's time for us to not live as a consumer anymore, but to live as the son and daughter that we actually are. To live into the true identity Jesus gives us. And so church, my, my final encouragement to you is to come to Jesus and to feel his touch, but not to slip away but to stay and live as the son and daughter that you are. To read his word and to see who he is. To pray and engage with him in a personal way. Letting him know what's the stress and the anxiety and the things that are stirring in our hearts, the joyful things as well. But to bring all of ourselves to him. And with that, let's pray. Jesus, I... I pray that you would help each of us in this room and those that are listening online to really take this to heart. May we actually call out to you in our time of need and the different needs we experience. May we not just hide because we feel stupid or undeserving or unwanted, but may we be like my own children and come bursting and ready to make the ask. And honestly, having the expectation because you know us and you love us. And Jesus, if there are those in this room that have real tangible needs, I want to ask that, that you would meet them in those needs. If it's emotional or spiritual or financial or physical or relational, Jesus, may you show up and show yourself caring and compassionate to these people. May we not just be entertained like the crowd, but may we truly be in awe and in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching from Boise Community Church. To find more resources and information about Boise Community Church or to give to the mission of Boise Community Church, please visit us online at boisecommunitychurch.org. If you were encouraged by today's podcast, 
Please rate and review it so more people can discover the hope and joy of Jesus' love.